From derivatives trading to selling ads for social media platforms in Africa, Sean Riley is an entrepreneurial force to be reckoned with. Sean has a way with words and an affable personality that makes him the perfect salesman. He used these gifts to sell everything from payment gateways to performance management software. He is the CEO of Ad Dynamo, and the road to his latest business exit was paved with trial and error, so much business travel that his dream night out was his own couch at home, and a series of tough but important questions. My name is Nick Aralambas, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. But remember, it's not over until it's over. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Very good on yourself, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, brilliant. I appreciate you coming on board. And uh, actually, uh, you being on this podcast at this moment is an interesting time for your business because your recent news is that you've successfully exited after many years of building. Um, so let's kick off and tell people what you do, what business we're talking about, and like how you make money, like any high-level information so we know what we're dealing with. Sure. So the business is Ad Dynamo. We're the largest digital media reseller across Africa. And yeah, we represent uh, Twitter, Spotify, Snapchat, and Yahoo on the continent and generate all of their ad sales revenue. Okay. And how do you make money as a business? So we actually get paid by those platforms to represent them. So when an advertiser chooses to book uh, Twitter media through Ad Dynamo, we don't apply a markup. What you see on Twitter's ads platform is exactly what we bill. And Twitter pays us a share of that ad spend to deliver services uh, to the larger customers within Africa. And I would, you know, I would say that the, the, the goal of the relationship is to deliver service at the same standard that the likes of Twitter or Snap or Spotify would if they were in market. Okay. And it's interesting to me, and it's something I've actually always wanted to ask you, uh, why why do these people, these platforms come to you? Why don't they go direct and sell their ads directly? And why have they kind of safeguarded this African continent? I mean, we're both African entrepreneurs. I love it when people say Africa. Um, but like, explain why this exists. Sure. So the model, uh, the reseller model for a lot of these big platforms is prevalent, not just in Africa, but in many markets. And uh, I would say that, you know, that decision is driven, the decision to work with a local partner is driven uh, in some part through convenience, so not having to manage a, a remote team sitting in Nairobi or Cape Town or wherever it is, but then also through uh, being able to le le leverage local expertise, local knowledge, uh, you know, South Africans selling to South Africans or Nigerians selling to Nigerians is always going to um, be a, you know, be an easier model. And I would say that scale obviously dictates that as well. So, you know, the US market is just so big that uh, it makes sense for the likes of Twitter or Snap to run their own sales teams, uh, whereas uh, so, you know a market uh, such as Africa is um, you know pales in comparison, but still holds a lot of value for them. So the convenience of working with a third party who can hire on the ground, uh, offer local expertise, generate some revenue for them, uh, you know definitely plays a role in making that decision. We. Out of interest, we have seen um, many platforms actually unwind direct sales offices across Europe and many other markets as they started to actually realize that sometimes having a local reseller who has skin in the game can, can deliver better value. Okay, that's really interesting. And um, how long have you been building at Dynamo for? So we, we launched at Dynamo in 2009. 
Um, and the business, the business has changed in many, many ways, which we can talk through. But, you know, obviously, when we started, we, we began with uh, proprietary technology and ambitions to, to be a, a global ad network. Okay. Um, okay, so 2009, you started and then I imagine it evolved into securing all this uh, ad inventory from these platforms. It wasn't like an idea you had, we're going to start this business and so we're going to be the middleman between the market and the platforms. So then the business is growing and I mean, it's now been a fairly long time that you've been building this business. So let's get into the meat of it. Um, what is the near death experience that you want to tell us about? Sure. So, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we had built our proprietary ad network technology and, uh, you know, we found some success in South Africa and, uh, you know, we had achieved, uh, funding through the local VC, f uh, firm in Bentham. And so we, in hindsight, <laughs> probably very prematurely decided that it was time for global domination. And, uh, I jumped onto planes and ended up spending, uh, the next couple of years, uh, you know, essentially going and lobbying for partners in various markets. And, uh, you know, and when I say, when I say in hindsight that it was premature, you know, what we, you know, we were so anxious to globalize our business and to, uh, attract, you know, I think every South African entrepreneur harbors some passion or, um, uh, dream of generating non-rand based revenue to some extent. And, uh, you know, but, but we were in a situation where I was having to go to Germany, to Brazil, to Spain, and essentially try to sell the dream of what a dynamo's vision was. And, uh, and quite frankly, what that did is it brought out all the rats and mice and the, the, the worst possible partners you could have hoped for, uh, because we were, we just had no traction. We had no dominance. The product was okay. Um, and I was having to kind of, you know, pitch us to potential resellers and where you really want to be is you want these, you, you actually want to have built up scale in your market and have these partners, um, you know, approaching you, you know, and, and in hindsight, that's where we should have grown the business to be is um, someone phoning us out of Australia saying, I love what a dynamo is doing. How do we, how do we become part of that in Australia? And uh, so, yeah, we, so we, um, to give you an idea in 2012, I was um, on the road, I was away from home 300 days in that year. Um, so um, a lot of travel and, um, and, you know, super and heartbreaking experiences. We, you know, in Brazil, we got, um, we got all the way to the point of appointing a reseller, um, spending two weeks in market to train them. And then three days after leaving the market, the, the person who was going to lead that and their CEO had had a fight and that business was gone after months of work. Then in Spain, we actually, uh, we were, we were, we, we had a partner earmarked, but they were too slow on actually getting going. So what we did is we actually hired a team, put a team on the ground, started the operation and, um, and it was doing exceptionally well. It was, um, you know, well for us in the circumstances at the time. So back, back then we were generating, you know, at, you know, within a few months from, from zero, we were generating 3000 euros a day of revenue in Spain. And, um, so we had this prospective partner watching this and then they were like, okay, uh, we're now ready to take over. So we handed them literally a going concern with a tiny team of, you know, we had, uh, three people generating that, that revenue. Um, and you know, and it was a slick, smooth operation that, and we had built it up to that within four or five months. 
They took it over, appointed the 75-year-old brother-in-law to run it, fired the country manager, and took a 3,000 euro a day business to 80 euros a day overnight. <laughs> so uh, heartbreaking stuff. We watched this movie for a few months and then it, you know, reluctantly decided to pull the cord. And you know, similar experiences in so many markets. You know, we we just kind of you know left with a bloody nose um, in every market. Um, failed to find the right partners. Failed to you know build a sustainable traction. And by 2013, we, we just got to this point where it was a, um, you know, our VC was saying, uh, you know, there's no more funding on the table for you. And rightly so, you know, we had not really uh, shown any, any real traction. Uh, and we, yeah, so our moment was um, at our offices in Cape Town, uh, walking in and all of our shareholders were there, uh, people that I'd never met before. <laughs> and uh and it was quite a scary moment where essentially had to meet them and um, and they sat down, got read the Rights Act um, and got given one last and final lifeline in December of 2013 to, you know, to find a way. And, uh, and we had mitigation plans in place. We were looking at potential retrenchment, which fortunately um, never happened. But, you know, any any entrepreneur knows that that's a, it's not a pleasant thing to go through. And as um, a mentor once told me that if you usually, if you ever get to the point of thinking about retrenchment, it actually, you're almost too late already. Um, so like, just not a pleasant thing to, to think of like these people that have gone to war with us um, that we might have to ask a few to, to leave. And uh, yeah, and then the, of course, the, the big moment for us was literally one month later, winning the right to represent Twitter in Africa. And um it was something that we nearly narrowly missed. Um, they were about to about to go with another partner, and we fortunately, um, what had actually happened is I'd had a call with um, one of their execs uh, about eight months earlier, um, asking about how we could set ourselves up to become the the preferred sales partner in Africa, and she was a meticulous notekeeper. And what actually happened was they were about to sign with a local a local reseller, and she said, "Hold on, I've got notes from this company called a Dynamo." And she pulled out her Evernote uh, from our conversation and said, "Please just talk to these guys." And we slipped in um, at the stroke of midnight, and you know made a pitch, and um, yeah, we got very fortunate that they they decided to trust us, and the rest is history. Are you still in uh, in touch with that person? I absolutely am. So actually, um, the note keeper is actually a lady called Amy Saper, who um, is actually incredibly influential in Silicon Valley. And um, her husband is also like, you know, uh, quite a big tech, tech man who's worked for the likes of Twitter and Amazon. Um, but yeah, they, um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, what the, I guess what the power of good notes can do for, for someone in the bottom of Africa, right? Yeah, you you should like send that person everything you can imagine sending her now, especially with the exit. Hey, thanks. Look at what happened. Yeah. Um, there's so much stuff to unpack there uh, because I have been in those shoes. Um, I used to like to tell people that South African venture capital firms give you just enough money to fail, um, which 
I think in your case, it actually sounds like they gave you enough money and you went hell for leather. And I've actually been there too. raise money um, and then go global domination. Funding is an achievement. Let's go. So I want to ask um, about those moments. Uh, the first question is, do you have a co-founder or are you a sole founder? No, so that's a that's a great question. So actually, the um, although Dynamo was founded in two thousand and nine, the business that actually founded that was um, founded by myself back in uh, nineteen ninety nine with GT Ferreira, the the banker. Okay. Um, and along and very early on, I attracted uh, Wayne Wilson and uh, Clive Monroe, who ended up uh, working with me for well over twenty years. So, um, you know, so although they didn't found uh, intelligence, they, they were with me when we founded a Dynamo and, uh, and were there for most of the ride as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, obviously great to have, um, you know, we, we, you know, there were some dark days where literally um, our, our typical day was leaving the office at 2.30 to drink beer and cry on each other's shoulders. And uh, we always, you know, at stages, we would always talk about the B plan, but we never knew what that was. But we knew that there should be a B plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the reason I ask that is because it is difficult being a founder, never mind a sole founder, never mind a sole founder with venture backers who are pressuring you, who are now sitting on your board. Um, so what was the relationship like with your, your venture capital firm? Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, I think any business when things aren't going to, to plan, um, you know, the relationship will always, there'll always be friction and that's completely normal. So, um, yes, we had a, you know, we absolutely had a few tough conversations. We had a few tough times. But, um, you know, but I think, you know, sort of, you know, as, as time went on, we both got a feel of, um, of how to get the best out of each other, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what, what their expectation was in terms of reporting and governance and management and, um, and what I needed in order to, to prosper as a leader of one of their investments. So that relationship, you know, grew with time, uh, but absolutely, they're always, you know, they're always these, um, you know, there'll always be sort of, you know, I don't, and I think Musk has been quite a, you know, quite a big proponent of saying anyone, you know, any business more than four years never has a perfect trajectory. It's never a perfect graph. And it's never without a few wobbles, a few corrections, um, because also the world around you is also changing. So, you know, you can't start with a plan and stick to that same plan for 20 years. Um, there has to be some ad adaptation. And uh, in our case, there was a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And it sounds to me like um, you raised this money and then the plan that Invenfin bought into was global expansion. And at some point, the ship kind of moved towards Africa focus. Um, yes. When when did that happen? So that was, you know, in that 2013 period when so many of our partnerships were just not succeeding in various markets. So, um, you know, the, the focus to Africa was driven by a few things. It was driven by um, poor partners um, that were, you know, costing us more effort than the revenue that, that was being contributed. But it was also then, um, you know, we, you know, we were building good relationships with agencies and brands, but our story was incredibly, you know, like it just, there was no, there was no golden thread to our, to our narrative. It was like, yeah, we, you know, we just Cape Town based network with traffic in Brazil, in Spain, in Germany, uh, you know, and like there was just no logical thread to it. And when we actually got to the point where we said, we are the guys you go to for Africa. If you want to reach an audience in Africa, we are, th this is our expertise. So I guess we, uh, you know, we, we realized that we, you know, being 
0.0001% in 25 countries was not interesting to anyone, but being dominant in Africa was, was a, a really strong story. What a great point. Um, that, uh, that level of saying no to so many things so you can say yes to one thing, competing on your own playing field rather than a very cluttered playing field, like so much value in that. Um, and so now you've gone out, you've tried a few markets, you've got a few partners, things aren't really working out. Um, when did Invenfin start putting pressure on you or di and did they? Or was it self-imposed pressure going, fuck, this isn't working. What do we do now? I think it was, I think it was a bit of both, you know, because, you know, when you, when you raise capital, you raise capital for a fixed amount and you obviously, uh, you make promises and, uh, you know, spreadsheets can tell any story you want them to. So, you know, so we were in a situation where we were having to say to shareholders, we, we need a bit more runway. And that was never, that was never the agreement. So yes, there was pressure from them and expectation at the same time, there was also, you know, pressure on ourselves, um, to, you know, to try and make this work. I think the, you know, that crossroads of, um, you know, having to raise a little bit more capital to buy us a lifeline of then also signing Twitter and, you know, the other very hard decision that came about early and, you know, later on in 2014 was, you know, you know, we had bled for this ad network that we had built. And actually today still, I look back at the tech we built and compare it to a lot of tech out there. And it, I, I still believe that we built something world-class. Um, but then as a business, we looked at um, return on effort. So walking mm. into a room and saying, oh, yeah, we run a, um, an ad network that competes with Google. Quite a tough gig than walking into a room and saying we represent Twitter. Um, so, uh, so what also happened in the business is we had this dynamic that the best salespeople were actually selling our ad network because it was a much tougher sell. Um, because the, the Twitter team were kind of like almost fielding inbound orders from clients and they weren't necessarily our strongest sales team. So we developed this them and us dynamic that if you weren't on the Twitter team, you were the B team, but it was actually the A team was that we're actually the guys not selling Twitter because it was much harder. So then we, we got to the next really hard decision and that was to switch off the ad network which was, um, you know, like, and, you know, it, <laughs> we had built so much scale. Um, I don't know if you recall that we actually went as far as, um, you know, we solved a, a massive challenge of paying uh, bloggers and publishers across Africa on time. We I issued do, our own. I do recall this. Yeah, we issued our own visa card, um, which we posted to qualifying bloggers and we would top them up with their money on the first day of each month. So, you know, we had gone through so much pain to build that and there was so much um, emotion invested in it that then to, to get to that point where um, you've got to make a business decision and um, put the emotion um, aside about, you know, what's best. And we did that. And um, the reason that we didn't sell it was that, you know, it was, it's quite a complex, um, you know, an ad network is quite a complex um, tech environment. And we would, have had to, we would have had to offload it with um, our tech team and we oh. didn't we didn't want to lose the tech team we wanted them to be part of the journey and to build other things for the business so we just made a, a a very hard decision to literally just one day turn the key and switch it off okay uh so if you can't talk numbers that's cool but like in your head give me a guesstimation of how much this tech cost you to build and what i'm trying to tee up here is um I know so many entrepreneurs who've got the sunken cost fallacy that are just like, I'm in, I'm going to be in here forever. Whereas one of my nickisms is sometimes you've got to burn it all down. 
Like yeah. sometimes the only way forward is to gut everything and go forward. So how much did this cost you? And I, I'm, I'm trying to give the listeners a, a feeling of how hard this decision was because I know the tech that you built. I was actually one of the yeah. bloggers who got a visa card. I mean, just getting visa cards in and of itself is a mission. Yeah. So what was yeah. that like? So I would, um, I would guesstimate that, um, you know, there are two aspects of cost there. The first one is like the hard cash investments um, and so on. And I would say that, uh, you know, probably in the region of about 20 million rand to, you know, to, to build that business. And then, of course, um, you know, all the entrepreneurs um, and founders involved from the outset, you know, no one was earning market related salaries either. So there's also that personal cost of, um, you know, we all, you know, um, I think, you know, you know, our head, you know, our CTO, Clive could have, you know, commanded a, a sort of 5x salary at uh, many other companies, but chose to believe in what we were doing. So there was also that personal investment from so many people. And so I actually let's dig into that a little bit because it is something that I think a lot of founders battle with in this pivotal point in a business where things are on a knife edge. Financially, you're probably not paying yourself a salary or a good salary. You're bleeding money. Your investors are coming uh, at you aggressively, but you've still got this incredible staff who are easily poachable, who are very good at what they do. How does a founder retain that kind of talent when you're going under? Yeah, so Nick, that's um, that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, so uh, you know we and actually on our on our sort of sale event now with Aleph, you know, it was quite nice to phone a few former colleagues and tell them, hey, there's a check in the mail, and you know, for most what parties feeling, it was uh, yeah, and for most people, you know, it was a lot more than what they anticipated. So it was quite a good feeling to to reward that uh, that loyalty, but. Um, you know, it is, I think the one challenge South African businesses and a lot of businesses across Africa have is that we don't have a lot of um, wealth creation success stories in the market. There are a few, but they, they don't happen. They don't happen often enough that there's belief. So, mm. you know, the one, the one thing that we found is that, um, you know, if you're going to give shares, give it to someone that wants shares. Because very often, you know, if someone's 23 years old in your workforce, you, you'll actually find that beer money is much more important to that person than shares. So we actually got to the point where we started to realize we were giving some people shares, but they, they actually just wanted to party harder on a weekend. And if that's what is important to you at that stage in life, it's, it's a far cheaper outcome for us as a business. And, you know, so, you know, so being able to give equity to those that actually want it, I think is, is critical. What was a game changer for us, of course, was, you know, the whole, you know, the whole story of the company you keep. And, you know, we were, you know, we were trying to do ambitious things. And I think every startup, you know, every startup out there goes through those moments where, you know, you're trying to do ambitious things. You're trying to um, challenge someone dominant in your market, but, you, but you're doing it with, you know, your sort of soldiers next to you. And then the other people that you manage to hire, but they're not necessarily your first choice. And for us, the game changer was Twitter as a business in that that brand name, um, attracted a different caliber of, of talent. It, 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 you know, it kind of, you know, um, to be able to say to people, you, you're working for a dynamo, but you, you're representing Twitter. You're going to go to Silicon Valley and meet Jack Dorsey with us once a year. Um, you know, and a lot of our former employees have gone on to work at Twitter and Snap and mm -hmm. TikTok. And, um, you know, and to be able to, you know, so, you know, you know those platforms gave us a sort of access to a talent pool that we never had before. And, you know, I always say that for me, a, a massive turning point was, 
we were trying to do ambitious things with, um, you know, three great people and 15 okay people. And we suddenly got to a point where we were doing ambitious things where everybody was great. And um, the caliber of the workforce just lifted entirely. And I, I suppose that also harks back to your in-country partnership clusterfuckery where, you know, you've got av- subpar everything, uh, cronyism, nepotism, all sorts of crap that you can't control. Um, so actually, sometimes better to pull the parachute and just build it yourself. Absol- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I want to jump back uh, because I've been in one of these meetings too, to that shareholders meeting uh, where you you had to have them have a come to Jesus moment for you. Um, t- tell me uh, how, I want the visceral stuff. Tell me how you're feeling, the anxiety, the panic, the stress. Obviously at this point, you are not in a good mental health place because you've been away from home 300 out of 356 days, 365 days. So what do you do going into this boardroom of shareholders that you are about to just lose all their money. Like, what's yeah. that like? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's scary. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, you, and obviously having been through that yourself, you know, you know, I, when human beings do it, I call it blue screening, you know, the classic windows, uh, you know, kind of, you know, you, and you, you know, and w- with that kind of pressure, no one is ever their best self either. The world feels the walls or the walls are closing in. Um, and you, you're also asking for a lifeline and, you know, 90% of the people in the room making the decision about your lifeline, um, have still have no idea what your business does. Um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, so, so that, that's also the tricky bit in that there's, um, I would say that, 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 um, scenario actually brings a lot more, you feel like it's a lot more about, um, do they like you and, um, do they trust you and, um, the human part suddenly matters so much more because they're not equipped to say, we really believe in their Dynamo ad network. Um, mm. They, you know, they, 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 they'll, they have to take you on face value with what you say. And I think that, you know, it's, um, it can be, and it is an incredibly personal business and anyone says it's not, you know, um, you know, all the great VCs, they, they investing in the humans behind it and the idea comes second and, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, you feel that no more so than when you're begging for a bit of survival. Yeah, and I suppose that speaks directly to how founders conduct themselves throughout the journey. Because if you go into a shareholders meeting where you are literally begging for survival, you best have acted in the best of intentions and have integrity for the last five years. And then you can hit up your VCs for a little bit more. But if you've constantly been lying, backstabbing, cheating, talking crap, then they're going to be like, well, listen, you're one of the 20 we know is going to go down. We're just going to let you sink. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I think like, you know, um, you know, you, you know, and most VCs, um, will impose a level of governance on investing companies that they are not used to, um, you know, and, uh, and I'll say that that is like probably one of my big frustrations, uh, you know, in the early days was that we, we've always been, um, you know, like, you know, no startup is ever going to have the level, quite the level of governance or controls that a VC would like to see. And I think that there's a middle ground that both parties have to reach. But I would say that probably my frustration is that we always, um, we always had this cost, um, this excessive focus on cost within the business. And um, we've actually, historically, we've just never been a company that that overspends. We've always been, you know, we might miss the budget, but it's usually because we didn't sell enough. It's not because we spent too much. And uh, you know, our CFO actually, you know, you know, has used the line many times on me, you know, where 
you know, she's actually said to us, you know, you, you can't save yourself successful. And, um, and we, we, you know, but, but when times are tight, you sometimes do fall into that trap. And yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, you and I have both seen some companies out there that are busy faltering, but they still have full-time baristas on hand. And, uh, you know, so there's always a situation where, yes, um, costs need to be controlled. But I think that, you know, if you, if you start getting to the point where you think that um, 5,000 Rand could make or break the company, then it's probably already too late. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the point that you're making is such an important one for emerging market entrepreneurs, I think more so than developed markets, mainly because access to capital and access to income uh, in the emerging markets is much more difficult to come by. So we default to the scarcity way of thinking. And I think it's this this new idea, very not new, but popular idea now of scarcity versus abundance actually sums up what we're talking about really well. It's not scarce thinking to not have a barista. But it is abundant thinking to spend money on growth. And it's that balance of, uh, and I think it's young first-time entrepreneurs who think free food for everybody, free baristas, that's abundant thinking. No, that's wasteful. That's just yes. straight up wasteful. Like focus on bottom line, get that into a profitable state and then reward your team occasionally. So for me, it's that nice integration between scarcity and abundance versus being cheap and being expensive. I agree. And, um, you know, being, you know, running a, Building and running a sustainable business that is there in 10 years is the most responsible thing you can do for your employees. Um, giving, giving your team free lunches on Fridays and free drinks are, at, at month end is great. But, um, but actually, you know, like, you know, so many, so many startups, you know, get all of that right, but then don't manage to build something sustainable and viable long-term. And that is the most irresponsible thing you can do for your workforce um so yeah sometimes um not doing the popular thing and doing the you know doing the thing that's sustainable and building long-term value is um you know people might not see it at the time but they will see it later i love that and i'm absolutely i'm telling you right now i'm going to steal that phrase that building <laughs> and running a sustainable business is more responsible for your team than just about anything else i love that um so i want to ask you about your role as ceo and founder now so raising money is a full-time job, which you did successfully with InventFin, and then you go on the road. And going on the road is working in your business, not on your business. So yeah. how much of that period would have been easier if you were the one working on the business and not in the business? And then the follow-up, which I'll remind you of, is um, when did the flip happen? Because Sean, as the CEO who works on the business, that kicks in. And then you're like, oh, well, now I can delegate and all of that. But when you are on the road 300 days a year, you're not working on your business. No, no, quite right. So... Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think in the early days, um, every founder member has to wear many hats and, um, you know, you'll be scrubbing a few numbers for month end one day and making a, a sales deck the next day. And, um, and that's very, I think that's very normal and very necessary. And obviously as, as businesses evolve, you start to need more specialists than generalists. But I would actually say the, um, so I have a very clear watershed moment and Stuart Hust, who you know from InventFin, shared a website with me many, many years ago, probably about um, six or seven years ago, uh, 10XE, local growth consultants. And they spend a lot of time um, looking at the difference between scale-ups and startups. And um, there were so many things that um, was like holding up a mirror. Um, you know, it was like, you know, seeing all the, 
the things that were necessary, but actually if I kept, if they were continued to be necessary, we would never scale. And um, the, the key one really being, um, you, know, the, you know, the key one being uh, that, you know, it's very normal for the founder to be heavily involved in sales in the beginning. But if you can't find a point where you can start to scale your sales without you having to be in the room, then, um, you know, you, it doesn't mean you won't have a great business. It just means that you're probably not going to achieve 10x growth. And, um, and so that for me was a, a absolute watershed moment. And, and then, you know, and then of course, you know, what allows you to do that as a founder and what allows you to do that is to, um, a hire exceptionally well, hire better. Um, so getting better, getting better at hiring, and then also getting a lot better at transferring and nurturing skills. Um, so getting better at actually being a leader and not being a doer, um, you know, and I would say that, and I'll say that the, the, you know, on the leadership thing, the one thing that, you know, probably for me, like a key characteristic of, of what success looks like there are the leaders that lead by, by showing, um, and not the leaders that lead, um, you know, by, by essentially telling. And, you know, we, you know, at Dynamo, you know, I've glossed it up for you. We're the biggest uh, sales business in Africa, but really we, we're just a sales business. You know, we're a bunch of salespeople and uh, we, we believe that we sell quite well. And sales is such a human business that, you know, if, if you're a leader and you're not like in the room watching how one of your people are presenting to a client and uh, representing Twitter and representing a Dynamo and representing Aleph, um, you've lost a massive opportunity to, to develop that individual. And uh, yeah, so I'd say um, that for me is like always a moment that for me has stood out as being a, mm -hmm. a moment where I realized I can't sustain this. Um, it's going to break me. Um, I can't be on the road th this often. And um, I'm going to add one more thing to that as well, is that, you know, as, as you all know too, um, you, know, the, you know, business travel can be very um, glamorized. And, um, you know, eventually when you have no routine and you're out of time zones and you're having to, you know, sometimes it's nice to entertain and sometimes you build friends with your clients, but not with everyone. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, when I get home from a business trip, the ultimate luxury is to lie on the sofa and watch TV in your own space because it's something you don't get to do on the road. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, take it for granted. And um, something that I've always been cognizant of since was that the same for my team that when someone goes to Lagos for two weeks or when someone, you know, is on a business trip, um, it's not all glamour and it can actually be quite lonely. And, you know, I often yearn for more of my peers and friends to actually connect more with me when I was not in the office to, to make my life a little easier. And that's something that I've tried to be better at with, um, with my own team as they kind of like, you know, go on those um, exotic business trips that are not always uh, all they cracked up to be. Yeah, it feels like a reward, but actually you're working and you're alone and you're doing this hard grind. Um, and, you know, uh, just to connect some dots here that I think are really interesting um, that we miss, these small things that actually make such a big difference. Uh, Ad Dynamo is uh, struggling, 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 and then you get Twitter. And Twitter not only brings you revenue, but also brings you this brand, like you mentioned, that helps you hire better people, which in the medium term helps Sean back away from sales because now you can hire yeah. the best people because you've got this one stalwart client that is just killing everything. So it's amazing how these dots connect even when you can't see them. Like looking back on it, Twitter was this watershed thing that got you the team you needed to free up Sean's time to do the key work on your business to expand even further. Um, and it all happened a month after you almost died. 
Like 100%. Yeah, that's astounding. I mean, they always say it's always darkest before the dawn. And in almost every conversation I've had in this show so far, that's been exactly the case. Like, yeah. you're just about to die, but you survive to thrive. Quite, quite right. And, um, and, and I also think that, um, you know, as you say, it was, you know, like a month could have changed our world completely if it hadn't played out like that. But I think we were also especially lucky that it was Twitter. Um, because Twitter, in terms of um, their internal maturity around sales and, um, you know, and the science of sales and the science of forecasting, um, you know, we learned so much and continue to learn so much from them in particular as a partner. Yeah, they were also, um, uh, I mean, they're popular globally, but in Africa, Twitter is quite quite a, the punchy, prominent social network that people joined early on. I mean, I think I've been on Twitter for like 12 or 13 years. It's crazy. Fantastic. It hit and expanded like nuts. Yeah. Um, I want to talk now about those 300 days away from home. Um, like more specifically, I want to talk about the mental and physical impacts on you and your relationships. So like, I know we do what we have to do, right? I, I get that. Like, this is what you've chosen to spend your time on, but that doesn't mean it's easy or fun. So how are you physically, mentally at this point? And do you have a relationship that you can sustain? Yeah. So the, the answer is no, you don't have a relationship you can sustain. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. it's just, it's, it's just not possible. Something's, something's got to give. It's not normal. Um, mm -hmm. Physically, I'd actually chosen to um, enter myself to run the New York marathon um, at the end of 20, at the end of 2012. And um, because you hate like, your life. I mean, like, what, what yeah, did you think? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember sort of, you know, four months before, um, not being able to run three kilometers. Um, so I was a bit, I was a bit, I was a bit concerned, but I, um, I kind of put discipline in place to, um, to at the very least do one, one run every Sunday and, um, and that run and train when I could in the week, but I was, you know, whether it was Madrid or, or Berlin or wherever, I tried to get a little bit of running in, but I slowly and, and slowly but surely sort of dragged myself into sort of marathon shape. But I do remember, um, on the morning of the marathon in New York, um, I've got a photo somewhere of myself in my prime, thinking this is this is me on marathon day, and I've got a photo in my sort of tight tight orange shirt, and I've got like a real boop, um, <laughs> and like you know I'm not this fitting image of a a man in his uh, physical prime, and realized like wow, um, this I, I I tried my best, but um, but yeah, it didn't didn't quite go according to plan, um, you know, and a lot of that travel was um, was entertainment. Um, you know, and, you know, you know, so sometimes, you know, I've got vivid recollections of literally having a, like a long lunch with the clients and involving many glasses of wine and beer, and then putting on running shoes to try to do a run <laughs> because I just had to try, you know, maintain some kind of a balance. And yeah, so it was, it was crazy. Um, it was crazy and it was, um, very, um, I think unbalancing, you know, you, you know, you, I think everybody, everybody does need a home. And, you know, you need a place to, to just kind of like unwind and, um, yeah, not like, you know, my hotel in London was the closest thing I had to that for a year. And I mean, the mental health side of it, it's, uh, this is now 10 years ago when this conversation for men and especially men in South Africa, wasn't really one that we had, especially as founders, nobody talked about depression, nobody talked about mental health. We all just talked about grinding and this hustle porn, um, idea, like, ah, oh, we're so amazing. We're working so hard, but like. How were you coping with the mental strain? Did you have a psychologist yeah. or friends who you were talking to? Like, what was what was the thing? 
I think I leaned on I leaned on friends a lot, um, and I don't think um, I'm enough of a man yet, even to to readily admit that I need uh, therapy. But um, yeah. you know, but absolutely see a place for that. Um, for me, the you know, for me, like one of the biggest um, sort of you know lifestyle changes that I made um, that was a positive was that I realized you know and one of the the challenges about being on the road, being ambitious, wanting to get shit done, was that you you fall into the trap of you never stop working. So. You're always, you know, you're always busy, but you're actually not really achieving anything. And I, I found myself sitting at hotel bars, um, answering emails on my phone, looking at financial reports on my phone, drinking, um, and 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 never like making space for myself. And I, mm. and I'll say probably too late in that year, but eventually I did realize that I needed to enforce, I needed to create a discipline. And so I just got to this rule that um, from 6 p.m. onwards, no matter what time zone I was in. That was me time, and um, huh. you know, and no work, no, um, I, you know, obviously the exception of having to see a client or whatever. But um, I got to the point where my phone would go away. I would go exercise instead, or pull out the Kindle. Um, and probably one more thing that, um, uh, so one human I'll give a shout out to that I learned a lot from is uh, quite a icon or Ian Banner, who's um, you know um, a bit of a, a marketing guru, a former Richemont man. And, um, you know, we, um, we actually paid him to do a roadshow with me um, back in 2011 to introduce me to all the Richemont brands across Europe. And Ian at that stage was 50 um, and I was, you know, in my, in my early 30s and, um, and, you know, it was quite fascinating to watch this guy. He was like, he was an animal. So we had, you know, we would go out with clients, we'd entertain them till midnight. We would then go to bed. And, um, and by the way, he charged an outrageous fee for this trip, but he was like, don't waste company money. We'll just share hotel rooms. So, you know, this like, you know, I, this man that I consider to be one of the most sophisticated humans on the planet, you know, we would like be sharing a double, du a double bed in a cheap hotel. But, um, and he'd be waking me up after drinking till midnight. He'll be shaking me awake at 6 a.m. saying, Riley, come, let's go. And he'd drag me up to the gym. And I'd also I'd also fallen into this trap over you know over sort of my work career and of travel going oh you know I'm a sleeper and I've travelled long haul you know it's um, you know it's uh, my body needs the rest and that was a wake up call for me here's this 50 year old who's just imposing this discipline to not let those things slip and um, yeah. and that was um, a massive moment for me where you just realise well if he can I can and sometimes you know sometimes it you know you don't have to be you don't have to go CrossFit for three hours, but you know you can uh, do something to start your day right. And um, and so he he also taught me a big life lesson that um, there's a, you're capable of a lot more than you think you are. That's such an incredibly interesting story because I suffer from this problem too. Oh, I'm traveling for business. None of my routine matters. I don't have to eat healthy. I can have that extra sweet and eat crap and whatever. But actually, if your default state is travel then that is your life and you have to build the routine into that. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's so scary though, as a founder and this default state, I think is the problem that a lot of us have. I have no problem with founders and startups who work hard. Sometimes you have to work 18 hour days, seven days a week for a short period. But when your default state is that struggle, then you've got a problem. When your default yeah. state is travel, eat shit, not be healthy, then you're in trouble. So such a good story yeah. to really, uh, observe what your own default state is and whether it fits into the kind of life you want. Absolutely. Yeah. So interesting. Um, okay. So Sean, this now goes well, Twitter comes on board. Um, 
how do you get the next client? Like is now Sean's job, Twitter's working, let's grow this model and you go and get more funding and scale or is it now operating out of profit and things are flying? So, so yeah, Twitter, Twitter was, um, you know, our life for the next few years. And there was a lot of uh, growth opportunity with Twitter alone. But yes, absolutely. We, um, you know, we wanted to, I guess, repeat the same model for, for other platforms out there. And, um, and I guess another, another story of, you know, what looked like um, sort of, you know, what, what appeared grim at the time, but ended up being quite good for us was that, you know, Twitter, Twitter had a tough year in 2016. And, um, and, you know, when Twitter has tough years, we have tough years. We, you know, we feed off each other's um, buoyancy. And, um, and, you know, we, in 2016, we saw a lot of our friends and, um, and senior people that we had built connections with within Twitter um, leave and move on. And, um, you know, that was, that was tough to see. And it happened quite, um, it was quite sudden as well. Um, and then what we saw, though, um, you know, six, seven, eight months later, was that, um, you know, Twitter was okay. Uh, Twitter, you know, Twitter kind of, you know, did, did really well at um, figuring out what they're really good at and, and focusing on that. Um, so Twitter, Twitter was in a better place. But then as a result, we also suddenly had friends scattered across Silicon Valley. And so, you know, so, you know, we suddenly had, um, you know, Spotify phoning us and, and Snapchat phoning us. And, um, you know, so that was a, you know, so yeah, what, what seems like, you know, again, another lesson of, you know, what appears to be um, disastrous at the time can very often play into um, something, you know, that that's actually really good. I mean, again, so many uh, insights here. The, the phrase that I wrote down uh, as you were talking is sometimes doing good work for a long period of time is a form of sales. Because if you wait long enough and those people move on and move up, they'll take you with them if you've yes. done a good job. Yes. Oh, man, yeah. such great little nuggets here, Sean. <laughs> um, so uh, as, we, as we wind down, uh, the question that I've asked all of my guests so far is what, what did you learn through this particular experience that you've taken with you everywhere you go? So I'm going to um, make it a bit, so I'm going to, you know, the experience for us was, you know, um, you know, sort of, you know, reaching that sort of pivotal point, um, being prepared to, to change the way we thought about our own business. And, you know, and then also what fed into this, because I believe that probably if we had kept the ad network going, it could have been an anchor for a long time. So getting, making an emotional decision about what, what made sense and not about, this was our plan five years ago, so we're going to blindly persist. And, um, you, know, the, you know, I've sat in many VC pitches where entrepreneurs are so sold into their own idea and the one way that their idea must be executed that I've yeah. seen many entrepreneurs, they don't even know they're doing it, but they're turning down investments in front of their own, own, own eyes. So I've sat through so many pitches where the VC is saying, hey, would you consider tweaking this or just changing this approach? And the person sitting there going, no, this is the one way and I will not change. This is, and you're sitting there going, dude, like this person's ready to invest. And um, if you could like, you know, put a little bit, bit of the emotion aside and, you know, bring your dream, bring 80% of your dream to life rather than 0%, you have an opportunity. And I would say that that, um, you know, being able to sometimes separate the, separate yourself from uh, the emotion and what feels right and um, step back and make the, make a, a sort of a better decision. And, and I, I guess to realize that very often, you know, when, when a VC or someone is suggesting someone, they, they are typically wanting success as well. 
you know, no one, no one's ever going to make a, make a suggestion for you all to fail together. So I think to be able to sometimes step away a little, um, see the, see the bigger, bigger picture and sometimes realize that, um, you know, fulfilling 80% of your dream is still better than, um, not even getting it to lift off in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Another one of my nickisms is strong opinions loosely held. Like it's okay yeah. to have a strong opinion, but if the facts change or another option is presented to you, maybe consider it because you don't know everything. Like it's perfectly acceptable to admit that as a founder. Right. Um, and now how is your personal life changed since you found stability? I mean, we all as founders know how this goes when the business does well, I feel like a star when the business does shit, I feel like a failure. I mean, I'm sure you've had some of that. So how have you found, I like to say finding the middle, have you managed to find the middle or is it still a constant, uh, bipolar experience as a founder? No, I've absolutely managed to find the, the middle. Um, I'm deeply, deeply in love, engaged to be married in two months yes. from now. Um, I've <laughs> met my person. Uh, she challenges me workways, uh, uh, you know, work-wise, um, physically, um, you know, with sports. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm in a great place. And I would say that um, the, balance, uh, the balance has absolutely uh, been found at last, but it, it, it took a long time. And, um, yeah. uh, yeah, it's a, it was, it's been a long journey. Um, I feel, I feel like, a, I need a, I, I do feel like, um, I need a bit of a holiday, um, yeah. at some points, uh, you know, <laughs> to just kind of like, you know, um, you know, think about it all and, uh, and take a breath, but, uh, in a very happy place, Nick. Thank you. Um, okay. So is there anything that you would like for us to have covered that we haven't? No, I'm good. Um, I think it's been a, I think it's been a great chat. It's been um, quite emotional going down um, sort of memory lane. And yeah, thank you for the fabulous questions. It's a pleasure. So before we sign off, tell um, everybody where they can find you, where they can follow you, where they can get in touch with Ad Dynamo or anything else you want to punt. Your your time is now. Thank you. Yeah. So you can always find me through Ad Dynamo. Um, our website is addynamo.com. My personal Twitter and Instagram handles are Sean Riley SA. Um, so yeah, best, that's the best way to get hold of me. Amazing. Sean, I'm so stoked to hear that for Ad Dynamo, it's not over. Absolutely not. It's the beginning. <laughs>